0: Alle in Deutschland, die ein wenig Motivation brauchen. Hier spricht Under Armer nur für dich. Wir sehen, wie du dich abrackerst. Kilometer für Kilometer bei Regen oder Schnee. Heute Morgen und jeden Morgen. Genau das macht den Unterschied. Es sind diese harten Kilometer, die dich stärker machen. Mach den Winter zu deinem Coach. Ganz egal, was dein nächstes Ziel ist. Nimm es mit diesem Winter auf. Mit den Hover Infinite 3 Stormlaufschuhen. Mit doppelschichtigem, wasserfestem Obermaterial von Under Armer.
1: Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. A big part of the job of an American president is in the realm of foreign affairs. It's the one bit of the job that's solely up to him. He doesn't share it with anybody else. And right now, there is a huge issue looming for Joe Biden, and it's looming on the border between Russia and Ukraine. Russian military forces are massing on the border. And there is history because Russia invaded part of Ukraine in 2014, annexing Crimea. So the pressure is on Joe Biden to take action and to somehow either deter the Russians from that invasion or to punish them if they go ahead. That comes with consequences of its own. What is an American president to do. No one better to talk about all that than Julian Borgia. He's The Guardian's world affairs editor, formerly a correspondent for The Guardian in Eastern Europe and now based in Washington, D.C. And I began by asking Julian to tell us what exactly the situation looks like now on the ground and diplomatically, even in a situation that is moving and
2: changing by the hour. Where we are diplomatically is that the US and NATO have uh, sent in the written responses that Russia had been demanding in response to these draft treaties that uh, Moscow had put forward. With the most important part of those treaties is that the US and NATO and Ukraine would uh, accept limits on NATO expansion so that there would be a guarantee that Ukraine would never be a NATO member. There are other demands as well, but that's the most important.
1: Just on that one, by the way, just before we get into the rest, just explain to us why that is so important for Russia.
2: It's very important for for Russia, in particular for Vladimir Putin, because he sees NATO as a hostile entity uh, that has been seeking to encircle and undermine Russia with the ultimate aim of destroying Russia. And so he sees a very important part of you know Soviet and Russian history, Ukraine, away from Moscow's sphere of influence would be a huge setback for him. And uh, it's really his fears that that was the way that Ukraine was going, that has really sort of triggered this current build up and this current crisis.
1: So no shifting on that from Vladimir Putin. Uh, and you've explained that.
2: But what are the other moves that are afoot diplomatically as we speak? Well, they had this meeting in Paris of the Normandy format. The latest round of talks between France, Germany, Russia and Ukraine is underway in Paris. That meeting being... Uh, They came up with a a joint statements saying that everyone believes in the ceasefire and everyone uh, believes in the Minsk agreements to the extent that people actually do believe them is questionable. Uh, there is a lot of action going on at the front lines uh, at the moment.
1: Russia has amassed 100,000 troops near its borders with Ukraine, leading to grave international concern and to several European countries reinforcing NATO's military presence in Eastern Europe.
2: But I've been told by the people who watch these things that the thing that is important is to look at these battalion tactical groups, which are the basic unit, the basic formation in the Russian army. And there's, for the last several years, there have been 30 of these groups in the area around Ukraine. That has built up now to going on to 70, and they're expected to be 80 all around Ukraine in the next week or so. And most importantly, military analysts are looking at the troops they brought in from the Far East, the Russian Far East, and taken them all the way over to Belarus for what the Russians are saying and military exercises to take place uh, over the next couple of weeks. That, the analysts say, is unprecedented uh, and a real sign that Russia means business. So you have a situation where Ukraine is encircled on, on three sides. And over the past year or so, the Russians have built up a huge amount of equipment in the region. So they could be ready to go at quite short notice. So as
1: you say, that's been going on almost for a year. Why has this suddenly become an urgent live issue
2: now? Mostly because the Kremlin hasn't made it uh, an urgent live live issue demanding replies saying they're not going to wait around forever and this sense that there is a, a timetable to this the ground at the moment is frozen if you want to move tanks and other heavy mach- machinery fast it's better to do it on frozen ground r- rather than when it starts to thaw and everything gets bogged down and Again, the military experts are saying, and also the U.S. government is saying, that window closes around mid-February. So there is a sense also in the pace in which the military hardware and troops have been uh, amassing has accelerated and some of the bits and pieces that would absolutely be needed for an invasion or any kind of military operation. For example, airborne troops, those are start, starting to move now. So this feeling is that we are approaching a, a moment of truth here.
1: And and obviously, our podcast focuses on American politics. And so the American angle on this is is what exactly? To what extent is Vladimir Putin making this move or threatening to make this move because of the change that's happened in Washington. And of course, we remember the relationship between Vladimir Putin and Joe Biden's predecessor, Donald Trump, uh, and that famous press conference where Donald Trump really refused to say anything, sort of even vaguely confrontational to Vladimir Putin.
2: I have uh, President Putin. Uh, He just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be.
1: To what extent is Putin doing this now in a way that because there has been a change in leadership
2: in Washington? I don't think that's what it's about. I think it's a long-term aim of Putin's to bring... Uh, Ukraine within its strategic orbit. Uh, And he's tried various things to make that happen. Obviously, the uh, annexation of Crimea and the intervention in Donbas in 2014. What America is officially calling a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Russian troops spreading out throughout the uh, strategic Crimean Peninsula. President Obama speaking with Russian President Vladimir Putin. One of the aims of that was to try and control what Ukraine did, make sure that Ukraine couldn't go westwards, couldn't join the EU, couldn't join NATO because Russia would have a veto by controlling half of its territory. He hoped that Donald Trump would allow that to happen. And you know he had reason to believe that. Trump was no fan of Ukraine, no fan of NATO either, but ultimately that didn't work. So nothing has worked to achieve what Putin really wanted. And so this in the way is the last throw of the dice. It's uh, thrown away all subtlety. If this is his uh, intention to invade, this is really achieving his aims with a a sledgehammer.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? Because as you say, there was perhaps some expectation and you can see why. It wasn't an unfounded expectation on his part that Trump might indulge uh, his designs on Ukraine. He couldn't have that delusion now with Joe Biden. Does it mean then that Vladimir Putin is essentially factoring in that there may well be a proper conflict with the Americans, because Washington's not going to acquiesce in an invasion, uh, and he's just
2: going for it anyway. Well, the Americans have telegraphed that what the response is going to be. It's not going to be sending troops into Ukraine. It's going to be about strengthening the NATO's eastern flank and imposing sanctions. Now, clearly, uh, if Putin goes ahead with this, he's made the calculation that he can withstand those sanctions. He is aware that you're talking about two nuclear superpowers here who have to tread very gingerly when the, their troops get close to each other. So he knows the Americans are going to be careful, NATO is going to be careful. And what NATO is doing is putting together a sort of cordon sanitaire along NATO's eastern flank, not for it to get involved in Ukraine on the with boots on the ground itself, But of course, you know, these calculations can go wrong. Things unplanned, things can happen. And that is the inherent risk here.
1: It's very good to have that reminder that these are two nuclear armed powers. There was a time where even just the slightest uh, cross exchange of words between Washington and Moscow would have the world holding its breath, assuming that we were on the edge of Armageddon. It isn't quite like that now. But if Putin is assuming that there's a limit to how far Biden and Washington will go. He's essentially assuming that there would not be a shot fired, even if he were to invade Ukraine. Washington is going to respond, yes, diplomatically, yes, through economic sanctions, but it's never going to have an armed response. Is that the calculation?
2: Absolutely. And Biden and and, uh, NATO itself have made that clear. They're not going to be sending troops into Ukraine.
1: And so, you mentioned before the invasion or an annexation of Crimea in 2014, and it's worth remembering that, of course, Joe Biden was in the administration then as vice president. Uh, uh, admittedly, so what lessons is Team Biden taking from the experience of the uh, Obama uh, administration back some what nearly eight years ago?
2: The one thing they've made clear is they're not going to do things the same way they did them in 2014. The way they did things then was a gradual introduction of targeted sanctions on individuals and entities who they saw as responsible or involved in the annexation of Crimea. This time, they say, we're going to go to the top of the escalation ladder and we're going to stay there, meaning they're going to go big from the outset when it comes to sanctions, the the most sweeping, biting sanctions that they can manage. So they're really signalling that strong that this isn't 2014.
1: And yet, and that's fascinating, again, because it's, it's Biden-Harris resolving not to be Obama-Biden, and Biden was the common element in both episodes. But we then go to what happened last week, and there was much criticism of how Joe Biden talked publicly about this subject.
0: But well, I think, as usual, he's going
1: to, well, I probably shouldn't go any further, but I think it will hurt him badly. And I'm going to quote back at you something you wrote here, which was that on Russia and Putin, the president said the quiet part out loud. Just just tell us what he said and and, and why it might have been a mistake.
2: Yeah, no, he made a complete mess of things. Um, first of all, he said that Putin would move in. He has to do something. And by the way, he said he has to do something, which, you know, you kind of can see what he meant analytically, that he's under internal pressure and so on. But it came out as, as weird coming from the president of the United States, almost taunting Putin to go ahead. And then he said, well, it's one thing if it's a minor incursion and we end up having to fight about what to do and what not to do. So he, he had president of the United States saying that if it's anything less than a full-scale invasion, you will divide NATO and uh, we won't be able to agree on a common response. So there's room to work if he wants to do that. Now, Putin may know that, but for the President of the United States to be saying this out loud is really strategically significant and, of course, really caused dismay in NATO, in Ukraine, and among his own aides who very quickly had to clarify and backtrack and clear up the mess. It is
1: so striking that line about, you know, it's one thing if it's a minor incursion, because of course it was all, that almost sounds like an invitation. You know, if you do it small, we'll turn a blind eye. It reminded me a little bit of when Obama in a very different situation in the uh, 2012, 2013 period in Syria said, you know, these are my red lines, meaning then referring to Syrian use of chemical weapons against their own people. It sort of sounded like anything less than that. That doesn't cross that red line, you know. Knock yourself out. You've got permission, and that's how I sort of heard an echo of that with saying one thing if it's a minor incursion. But I know you've said some interesting things about why you think Biden does this, where he almost sort of commentates on the news as if he's a pundit, saying, you know, this is obviously what Putin might do and what he's thinking. And 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 you've you've got an interesting take on on why Biden does that.
2: Well, yeah, I think those who have worked with him as senator and vice president know about Biden, that he doesn't know where to put a full stop. He doesn't know when to stop talking. Uh, it feels that he has to sort of relay the knowledge that he's acquired from these many years of experience. And of course, you know, that didn't matter so much when he was a senator on the Foreign Relations Committee, didn't matter so much in the back rooms in the White House when he was vice president. Now it matters a lot. And so this is Biden being Biden, but in a situation where he can no longer afford to be.
1: And I find that much more persuasive than the kind of Fox News critique, which is, oh, it's another senior moment. You've mentioned that he's going to be the un-Obama. He's going to not do this gradually, but go straight to the maximum penalty uh, for Vladimir Putin. You've also made clear, and it's absolutely not contested, that, you know, they stop short of anything involving hard power, military power. So within those parameters then, what are the things that Joe Biden uh, himself could do as American president and as leader of the Western alliance to punish a Russian incursion or invasion of Ukraine?
2: One thing sort of financially is to cut Russia off from the SWIFT uh, system, which is a system of uh, electronic payments that you have to sort of be in if you want to do international business. Uh, that's what they did to Iran, and it really hurt Iran. Not all uh, U.S. allies in, in Europe are on board with it because of the potential for reprisals against Europe. Another option is Nord Stream Two, the gas pipeline. It bypasses Ukraine, and opponents say it'll give Russia's Gazprom more power over Europe's energy market. The State Department strengthened its language on that and said, if there is an invasion, if there is a military operation in Ukraine, that pipeline will not open. Uh, And that's the strongest language we've heard on that. And that has been dependent on the US and Germany agreeing that that is what has happened. And for the fact that the State Department is saying that means that that is now very much on the table, cutting off Nord Stream 2, which of course cuts both ways. It cuts Europe off from uh, gas, but also deprives Russia of its main source of uh, export earnings. So that would be a very big move.
1: But I suppose the risk is some of those end up hitting the West quite hard. For example, that point about gas supplies. I mean, it will be gas customers in Western Europe who end up potentially suffering from that.
2: Yes, so the US is trying to mitigate that by going around the world and trying to secure deliveries of liquefied natural gas, LNG, uh, from, from suppliers around the world. That is going to be hard because the sort of quantities you're talking in the LNG market are much smaller than the sort of quantities that are coming across daily from Russia, currently through Ukraine into Europe. So that is going to be tough to try and make up for that shortfall. But the Biden administration has said you know, that failure is not an option and they will find a way.
1: So, uh, as I said, our focus on this podcast is is the politics, particularly the American politics. So let's just hear how all of this is playing out. And if it is becoming political, is Joe Biden getting support, a bipartisan support in on Capitol Hill? Or is this becoming, as everything is becoming in American life these days, you know, partisan and political?
2: Yes, post-Trump, really nothing, hardly anything is bipartisan. And uh, certainly this isn't. Although they're not really putting out a very different direction, the Republicans are seeking to paint Biden as weak and saying, this would never have happened if you hadn't pulled out of Afghanistan. You have senators, uh, Ted Cruz has put forward a bill to put the sanctions on Nord Stream 2 now, uh, put the sanctions up front. That would, of course, rob them of of any deterrent power. But the Republicans are using it, using this bill as a way of demonstrating that Biden is weak because he's not going to use his weapons uh, and preempt uh, Putin.
1: In terms of this other part of his job, which is to be, as it were, deliberately using an old Cold War phrase, the leader of the free world, how is that working out for him? How has he been doing in terms of corralling together, uniting Western allies particularly european allies in having in coming to a united stand against uh, putin and and prospective russian aggression against ukraine
2: Well, he's put a lot of effort into it. Uh, The US officials are constantly saying there'll be nothing about NATO without NATO. In in other words, they're going to include NATO in all the decision making, not going to be making decisions over the heads of NATO member states. Uh, And they've been very disciplined about that. And it's clear that NATO partners have appreciated that. They've, of course, started off on the wrong foot in the Biden administration when he decided he was going to leave Afghanistan without really consulting or listening to the reservations of uh, his NATO allies. And they felt that he ran a roughshod over their concerns. So there is an element of of having to make up ground here. But in terms of rallying NATO and keeping NATO together, I think there's a feeling in, in Europe that he on the whole has done a good job.
1: But as you say, it might not bring in much benefit um, domestically. Um, People tend to notice what you don't do rather than what you succeed in doing. I know everyone is waiting. It's a kind of waiting game of what will happen. What's your sense of what is going to happen and how soon? I mean, are we looking at a Russian invasion? What, in the next few days? Could that be possible?
2: I don't think the next few days is likely. The administration here has been used the word imminent a lot. And I think you know the, there's a misunderstanding of what they mean by imminent, in that they see imminent as being in the next couple of couple of weeks, uh, and certainly that is very possible. Uh, all the bits and pieces that uh, the military experts say they'd need to see before an invasion could take place, now we're beginning to see them uh, appear around uh, Ukraine. We're beginning to see airborne troops moving. Now, the other element is you have Vladimir Putin going to China for the opening of the Winter Olympics in China, and he's going to be there on February the 4th. So there's a calculation that maybe he won't want to irritate Xi Jinping of, by conducting an, a, an invasion when the Olympics are starting and when there's this, you know, it's a big moment for China to be staging these Olympics, and so, it would be at least put off until he returns from China. So, you know, if it is going to happen, that puts the most likely window of somewhat time between the opening of the Winter Olympics and mid-February.
1: People now talking, you're not the only one, as if one way or another, obviously an argument about the timing, but one way or another, an invasion by Russia of Ukraine is coming. Is there anything we haven't said that Joe Biden could do even at the 11th hour, even at the 59th minute of the 11th hour, to avert this outcome? Is there any option he has uh, that could stay Vladimir Putin's hand in Ukraine?
2: It is possible to imagine that the US, its NATO allies, EU, were able to put on such a determined show of unity and resolve and readiness to impose the biggest sanctions possible, that Putin recalculates and wonders whether strategically he will be worse off by going ahead with military operations in Ukraine. But then, of course, that would be very difficult for Putin to march all his men to the top of the hill and march them down again. That would affect his standing greatly. So it, it is really hard to see a way out of this that doesn't involve military conflict
1: that is a sobering assessment and one very hard to argue with julian we always ask our guests on the podcast a what else question And there's a big one this week. After nearly three
2: decades on the Supreme Court, Justice Stephen Breyer is expected to retire.
1: It could be a rare bit of good news for Joe Biden and for Democrats. And it came in the form of the announcement by Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer that he is retiring and stepping down from the court. I say that's good news because it means that Joe Biden can nominate a successor for that seat While Democrats control the Senate. And of course, listeners know that Supreme Court judges are appointed by a combination of a presidential nomination and then a ratification confirmation from the Senate. Democrats do currently, albeit by a razor thin uh, margin, do control the Senate. So this is um, good news for him. And how's it going down in Washington?
2: Well, I think a certain amount of relief uh, among Democrats uh, and liberals that uh, Breyer is not going to be a repeat of uh Bard-a-a Ginsburg and hang on and-, and give potentially another Supreme Court pick to a Republican administration. Uh, at least that uh, is not going to happen now. He's stepping down in good time for a replacement to be nominated and then confirmed before the midterm elections, where, of course. Biden and the Democrats are in danger of losing control of Congress. So at least it's not terrible news. But of course, he's just replacing one liberal with another liberal. It's not going to change the conservative skew in the court, um, but at least uh, it's not going to give away another pick to a Republican president.
1: Well, I'm absolutely right. The court is six to three conservative to liberal, and that doesn't change. Breyer holds just one of those three liberal seats, and so that's just a changing in that allocation, as it were. Um, but you, you say, you know, that he will leaves in plenty of time. Here's my... And regular listeners know that I have can be anxious about these matters, but here's my slight worry. I saw the figure that Breyer will step down in, say, six months or so. It could be, you know, July... Uh, and I saw some noise from Republicans in the media aftermath of this announcement that, you know, they could delay and wait until some of them joking about waiting till 2024 until there's an, uh, you know, they think a, a Republican president, perhaps even Donald Trump back in the White House. But at the very least, if they manage to retake the Senate in November, I'm just thinking July to November, when the Democrats don't have full control of the Senate, those two very difficult customers, Joe Manchin in West Virginia and Kirsten Cinema from Arizona, if they don't vote with the Democrats, is it possible that Biden actually does not get his pick to replace Stephen Breyer?
2: Well, absolutely, yes. As you say, if uh, Manchin and Sinema turn him against him on this, on a Supreme Court pick, well, that would bring their defiance of uh, Democratic Party and Biden to new levels, uh, yeah, and would cause him enormous problems. And so really, once more, all her eyes are on Manchin and Sonema. Emma.
1: Yeah, as you say, once again, it's happened. It's been a feature of this first year um, of the Biden presidency. And, and so some excited and doubtless premature talk about who might take this seat. And Joe Biden has, like he did actually with the uh, vice presidency. He said in advance it would be a woman of colour. I think he has said specifically that it would be a black woman because there has never been a black female justice of the Supreme Court. Are there some runners and riders already emerging, Julian?
2: Yeah, there, there are. There's a number of uh, names that have come up. Uh, Kadanji Brown Jackson, who's an appeal court uh, judge uh, in DC. There's a California Supreme Court Justice uh, Leondra Kruger and a US District, uh, district uh, Court judge, uh, uh, J. Michelle Childs, you know, the, I would say the main front runners.
1: And uh, well that so so he will stick to that and that will be a, another ceiling broken uh, in a way if he achieves that. I'm sure um, that's going to be a dominant theme in politics over the next few months because Supreme Court nominations always are, even as you uh, rightly explained, it doesn't change the overall complexion of the court. Julian Borger, thank you for your terrific insight there on the Supreme Court, but also earlier on Ukraine. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me on.
1: And that is all from us for this week. Now, something a bit different, but which caught my eye. The Turner Prize-winning contemporary artist, Lubaina Himid will be joining The Guardian for a special live event on Thursday, February the 3rd at 8pm. Lubaina Himid made history as the first black woman to win the Turner Prize. And she has a new exhibition at the Tate Modern. She'll be talking about that and her career so far with the art critic, Hetty Judah. So if you're interested in hearing from one of the UK's most influential artists, head to theguardian.com slash Tate event to book your ticket. Tate event is all one word. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Danielle Stevens, and I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please look after yourselves and thanks as always for listening.
0: alle in Deutschland, die ein wenig Motivation brauchen. Hier spricht Under Armour, nur für dich. Wir sehen, wie du dich abrackerst, Kilometer für Kilometer bei Regen oder Schnee. Heute morgen und jeden morgen, genau das macht den Unterschied. Es sind diese harten Kilometer, die dich stärker machen. Mach den Winter zu deinem Coach, ganz egal, was dein nächstes Ziel ist. Nimm es mit diesem Winter auf mit den HOVER Infinite 3 Stormlaufschuhen mit doppelschichtigem wasserfestem Obermaterial von Under Armour.